Welcome to the USCCV First Freedom Podcast. I'm Aaron Weldon, and my co-host today is Lauren McCormick. Thanks for joining us, Lauren. Hi, Aaron. Thanks for having me. So today we're going to talk about the Equal Campus Access Act of 2019. And just to get started, imagine for a moment a college freshman. She's young, idealistic, and she's interested in animal rights, perhaps. So the new student goes to her first meeting of an animal rights advocacy group on campus and finds the leader is wearing leather and serving burgers at the meeting. Uh, It sounds silly to imagine a mission-driven group with a leader who disagrees with the mission of the group, but that seems to be where we are on some college campuses. Joining us today to talk about the kinds of policies that might get us into such a situation, uh, so-called all-comers policies, We have today talking with us uh, Kim Colby. Kim is a graduate of Harvard Law School. She has worked with the Christian Legal Society's Center for Law and Religious Freedom since 1981, and she is a longtime advocate of the rights of Christian students on on campuses. Kim, thanks so much for taking the time out of your day to come and talk with us. It's a pleasure to be here. So the Equal Campus Access Act, it's meant to deal with the issue of so-called all-comers policies. Can you just first tell us what are all-comers policies? Well, all-comers policies, uh, actually, most of us think they don't really exist, but a lot of university administrators think that claim to have all-comers policies. And what they're telling the student groups at those campuses is that, like your illustration with the animal rights group. That is a, that something like that could happen? In theory, it could okay. happen. <laughs> that they're telling um, groups that they cannot require their members or leaders to actually agree with the beliefs of the group, that by requiring them to agree with the beliefs that somehow they're infringing the rights of the individual students to be the leader of any group that they want to be. But of course, that whole idea destroys the kind of reason for forming groups in the first place. Right, yeah. I mean, it's the the other kind of example that I've thought of is like, if you, you go to a, a, the socialist group on campus and they're saying all property is theft because somehow they managed to get a libertarian elected as leader, um, it seems silly, but they must serve some purpose. I mean, I like to think that, that the administrators behind these things have good intentions. What, what are they trying to accomplish with these policies? Well, they're trying to accomplish inclusiveness uh, because that's one of the high values right now in our culture, and, and it's that's understandable uh, in general because we want people to feel welcome and included. And um, even in, at all the religious groups I'm aware of, they very much want people to come who don't necessarily agree with their beliefs, and they want to make everyone feel very welcome, and they're good at that. Uh, but, that but that makes it even more important that their leaders agree with the religious beliefs beliefs of the group, because the leaders of the group, the student leaders, um, are often leading the Bible studies or the prayer and worship time, and they also are the spokespersons for the group. So if the campus is going to know what the Catholic group stands for and believes or what uh, Christian Legal Society has student campus uh, groups at various law school campuses, if, if anyone is going to know what these religious groups actually think and believe, the leaders have to be able to articulate those beliefs. And so that's why it's so important that um, 
it's fine to have policies that require every everyone on campus to be allowed to attend meetings and participate, but it's it's quite another thing to say that anyone has to be allowed to be the leader. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned your in your examples, you're mentioning religious groups. Um, can you say how, give some concrete examples of how religious groups have been affected by these policies? Because some have. I mean, this isn't. I, I gave a theoretical example, but but it really is affecting groups, right? Right. So a couple of examples are at Vanderbilt University. Um, a few years back, fourteen religious student groups were forced to leave campus because they would not agree to abide by a policy where they said. Uh, anyone can be our leader. They they all have statements of faith in their student documents saying, for Christian Legal Society, you have to believe that God created the world <laughs> and that um, Jesus saves us from our sins and rose from the dead. I mean, it's very basic beliefs, um, but the university was saying that any beliefs could not be required even of the leaders who lead the Bible studies and prayer groups. So at Vanderbilt, 14 different groups left the campus. Um, At University of Iowa, uh, there's a lawsuit going on right now about this. And the, the district court judge asked the university to tell her what groups would be excluded under the university's policy if she said to the university, you're allowed to do what you're wanting to do. And the university... Uh, returned a document showing that the only groups that would be excluded were 34 religious groups. So all the religious groups, except for maybe one, were going to be kicked off campus, the Muslim group, the Sikh group, the Catholics, the LDS, the evangelicals. Um, But that shows, but it wasn't any other group. And so that shows that these policies actually are being used to target the religious groups. One thing I wanted, I thought was interesting, so people may not realize that the Bishop's Ad Hoc Committee for Religious Liberty at the time in its core statement in 2012 actually identified the exclusion of ministry groups on campus as one of the uh, most important religious liberty issues at the time. And Kim, you've just given some recent examples, but this has been going on for a long time, and the number of incidents has actually just continued to increase. How Can you talk more about how this kind of got started and the older context to it? Right. Well, the really older context is there has been, um, since the late 70s, there have been colleges where religious groups were told that they couldn't meet because they were religious, just flat out, you're religious, you can't meet. And the initial justification was the Establishment Clause, separation of church and state idea. But the Supreme Court said that treating the religious groups like other groups wasn't a violation of separation of church and state. And then we saw kind of this move to using individual policies, whether uh, it's the all-comers policy or other policies, to say that um, the religious groups couldn't require their leaders to actually be the same religion as the group. And uh, we started seeing this in the very early 90s. Um, And we didn't really, we took it seriously, but we thought this is just such an odd idea. It it defies common sense to tell religious groups you can't require your leaders to agree with your religious beliefs, that um, it took a while for us to really start taking it as seriously as as it's become. I mean, you mentioned that all of these religious groups 
are affected, with, like when you talked about Iowa. But I, I wonder if, if um, people who think this is a good idea, if they have in mind just dominant religious groups and don't realize that it's also going to, you're, you're going to really harm minority religious groups too. And those groups on campus, I mean, that's for a person of a minority faith, that's, that's going to be a place where you really belong on campus. But it, I mean, it really has a bad, it has this adverse effect on, on not just say the Catholics and evangelicals, if that's who people have in mind. It's going to, it's going to affect Muslims, it's going to affect Jewish students, lots of people. Right. And that's just started to becoming become very clear, like at Iowa. Uh, Indiana University, there was a problem recently where the Muslim group uh, signed on to a letter with the other religious groups because the reason we see it first with Catholic groups and evangelical groups is that uh, Christians have always, for 2,000 years, had statements of faith. I mean, you know, the very earliest statements of faith, Jesus died, Jesus rose again from the dead, Jesus will come again, and the Nicene Creed. And um, so we tend to have some sort of statement of faith in our documents that our student groups have, and we've had them there for 50 or 60 years. Um, So that's one reason why we get targeted initially for this. But then, like at Iowa, Uh, when the university starts actually having to apply its policy even-handedly, they realize, oh, this Muslim group is is solely Sunni Muslims or solely this other type of Muslim or Sikhs or Hindus. And and so it's really been fairly recently, the last five years or so, that administrators of the universities have started to realize we can't – this policy won't just – uh, exclude the Catholics and the evangelicals. It will have to be applied uniformly. And we're lucky enough uh, at the federal level for the legislation that we're working on that would protect, affirmatively protect these religious student groups, the Equal Campus Access Act. That legislation is supported by interfaith groups, including Jewish and Muslim organizations. So whenever we're talking with members on Capitol Hill about the legislation, we're emphasizing that this is not just a Christian issue. This is this is a, a protection for all religious student groups. I can imagine as a person um, skeptical of our opposition to these all-comers policies saying, look, the worst thing that happens is you just go off campus. You know, I mean, it's not like they're saying you can't exist at all. They just it just means you don't get you you don't get to be a university sanctioned group or whatever. Like, why is it important that we protect uh, student organizations on campus? Well, it's important because a lot of the um, a lot of universities are in areas where geographically there isn't another place to go. You know, they may be more isolated than city-based universities tend to be. But also, um, the uh, religious groups are being discriminated against. And um, there is also a certain stigma to being excluded from campus and not being a recognized student group. At Cal State, there was a problem of about four years ago, and there continues to be a problem on some of the Cal State campuses. There are 23 different campuses for Cal State. But what happened there is uh, one of the um, leading groups, uh, they have a 1,000 people coming to their meeting each week. 
well, there are only so many places a thousand people can meet each week. And they were allowed because they, when they were a recognized student group, they could use the auditorium that they needed for free. Um, but once they were told they weren't recognized, they were going to be charged about a thousand or two thousand dollars a week to use the same space they've been using for free. And of course, it's a student group, so they don't have that kind of resources just to meet. And, and they wouldn't be able to rent the resources off campus either. Yeah, I think the just the, the fact that it's discrimination is really important. And we're, we're also talking about public university campuses. So the legislation would apply to those public university campuses. These are public spaces. We, as people of faith, want to be a part of the work that's happening there. And um, I personally was a part of University Christian Fellowship in college. And it just makes sense for anyone who's been in a college and university environment. You want to have access to the rooms. You want to be able to put up posters and not fear those take it, being taken down. And if all of these other organizations are on campus that are promoting community, doing good things, why wouldn't the religious groups be able to do the, the same thing uh, consistent with their values? So in particularly during this time where so many young people are struggling with isolation and loneliness, these campus groups promote community and do public service and are providing that sense of belonging and identity to, to Christian and Jewish and Muslim students on campus. And that's something that public universities should value. Mm-hmm. It strikes me, too, that there's kind of a, a dimension to it, an ecumenical dimension. I mean, when you have all the student groups there on campus, that they're all part of that the same like student organization fair during orientation, that there are also then those student groups are interacting with each other somewhat. When you put one off campus and isolate them, or if you put several off campus, it can kind of isolate them. Whereas I, I found at, um, at uh, Texas A&M, where I went to school, that uh, you know, campus ministries do cooperate on different projects and things, um, even across religions. And so, uh, like I remember, for example, most of my senior year working on a, like a Holocaust remembrance thing. And so Catholics, evangelicals, and the Jewish group, like all worked to host different film screenings, different exhibits, things like that. Uh, but if you isolate one of those groups or several of those groups, that sort of ecumenical type of work can't really happen. So it just it seems to me that that's another aspect of it. Um, I also I, I I'm glad you mentioned that about the this issue of isolation because it's something that that I think is worrisome too about this that if you um, start eliminating groups or taking them off campus, you can just imagine. I, I kind of made the joke about the animal rights, um, potential animal rights advocate, but you do wonder what the freshman that, who goes to orientation looking for the group, um, especially if it's, if it's a religious group and they don't find uh, a group like that, the effect that that can have on, you know, how if they thrive or not at, in college. Right. Well, that's right. And that's, as Lauren just mentioned, um, it is where a lot of students find not just a spiritual home, but a, but a community mm-hmm. um, for those four years on campus, which can be really stressful for students. Uh, they're trying to identify who they are. 
and then also just you know trying to do well in school when it's it may be they're away from home for the first time so it uh we have the law school chapters and i don't know how many people have told me over the years i don't know how i would have gotten through law school but for the cls chapter it they really do good work um on these campuses Mm -hmm. so tell us then about the campus access act itself how how does it work to address this issue so it would it, it would not tell a university what policy it has to have. It would let a university choose any policy it wants, but it just says whatever your policy is, university, uh, you cannot use it to exclude religious groups because of their religious speech, their religious beliefs, their religious practices, or their leadership standards. And um, so it's very simple, it's very straightforward. It's not trying to give special protection to religious groups, but it's trying to make sure that they're not being excluded because of their religious identity and and beliefs. And Lauren mentioned that it applies only to public universities, so it wouldn't affect public or schools that receive public funding. It only like it wouldn't affect um, like I wonder you mentioned Vanderbilt, uh, but it wouldn't affect it wouldn't. No. Help the students at Vanderbilt. It's unusual that way because it doesn't follow all the federal funding. Uh, It only is about the public universities, the government run, because, um, you know, for reasons that Lauren already pointed out, the taxpayers are supporting these universities and the uh, universities themselves, because they're public universities, are subject to the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. What I'm just curious. you know, this kind of taking a step back from the Campus Access Act, but is there action being taken other than this to try to deal with this, the problem we're talking about with the all-comers policies? I mean, you mentioned Iowa, there's litigation there. There are other places where... So there are are two lawsuits that I'm aware of, um, one against University of Iowa and one against Wayne State University in Detroit. Um, And... And so the, they're trying to go through the courts to solve this problem. Um, but we do think that the good thing about legislation is it applies nationwide, whereas various court decisions only apply where they have jurisdiction. And we think it will head off expensive litigation because once the university officials understand that this is what the federal law is, they're, they're going to probably follow it. Um, we also think it will help university officials because sometimes the problems arise on campus because of student governments, not necessarily the administration. And we're seeing this at Duke, of course, right, right this week, right? Uh, again, Duke's a private university, so this law would not apply to it. But this happens at public universities, too, where the student government steps in and and de-recognizes a religious student group. And it will give the um, college administrators the ability to say to the student activists, uh, actually what you're asking us to do is not something we can do under federal law. So we think that will be very helpful to the administrators themselves. Do you mind just clarifying for listeners who maybe don't aren't following this, what mm-hmm. what happened at Duke? Or, or right. there are other places where this happens, too. Right. We can what say. happened at Duke is a lot like what's happened at Vanderbilt and Cal State and other places where uh, there the student government had been asked to recognize or give official group status uh, to Young Life. 
And they did not like what Young Life's requirements were, religious requirements were for its leaders. And so they said, we won't recognize Young Life and they'll have to meet off campus. Um, and this happens all too often. This is happening right now at Duke. And I'm, I'm hoping that the administration there will step in and, and uh, correct what the student government mm-hmm. has done. It seemed like something similar happened at Yale with a pro-life group. Right. I'm it, thinking. Yes, the pro-life groups sometimes run into problems. Conservative political groups sometimes run into problems. But it's been, as Lauren was mentioning earlier, it's been a consistent problem for the religious groups for 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I always try to remember on this issue that this this goes to the core of what we as Christians are here for. This is about evangelization in the public square being able to share the gospel with our brothers and sisters on campus. And we absolutely have to fight for our ability to do that in every space, including on these campuses. So mm-hmm. um, really that foundational evangelization is what this is all about. And also I just wanted to mention, we have kind of an irony here because Congress in 1984 uh passed the Equal Access Act. Ours is the Equal Campus Access Act. But Congress addressed the problem when this was a problem of excluding religious groups at the high school level, at the public high school level. And so for um, however many, 35 years is my math right, um, uh, high school groups have been protected, but now we need to close the loophole and protect the college students Mm -hmm. too. So um, does this face opposition? Is this should this legislation, um, I guess you don't expect anything to come easily these days, but like what, what would opponents say if there is opposition? Why would – this seems just so common sense to me, but Lauren's making faces like it's not. But what, so well, what, it sh- what it is the opposition? It should be common sense. It's frustrating that it's not. Um, thankfully, at the federal level – Uh, The bill that's been introduced, S-1168, the Equal Campus Access Act, I've not seen any um, public opposition to that. And in the conversations that we've had with Democratic offices, there's been an openness to this constitutional principle. Um, And so we've we've been encouraged by those conversations. I will say... um, So when other states have passed these similar laws at the state level, the opponents tend to try to characterize it as a license to discriminate. The religious groups are... Even for this. Even for this. And um, I specifically saw some opposition in Virginia that used that kind of phraseology. So that's that's a little bit more on the opposition. Kim, what, what about you? Have you seen other opposition to this proposal? Well, university officials often don't like to be told what to do, period, right? Um, they don't like anything that restricts what their discretion. Um, as I said, I think it helps them actually in the long run have a federal law that draws the line and they know where the line is. Um, but you know, we might see some problems, just some pushback from just normal reaction to don't don't regulate in our area from the campus um, administrators. But otherwise, I think it's such a common sense idea that that's almost the problem with it is we'll go into offices and they've not heard of this problem 
and they can't quite believe that sometimes CLS has someone who identifies as an atheist, but who likes our group. I mean, we're very welcoming people. And the atheist wants to be the leader because he or she thinks they have something to contribute. And it's, we want them there. We want to hear their ideas, but we don't want them uh, imposing their ideas on the group, which is what would happen if they were the leaders. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that that's um, all I have in terms of questions. Are there any anything you want to close us out with? I just think that one of the really important things about this is that the lesson that college administrators who take the wrong path are teaching the students is that religious ideas and religious beliefs can be excluded from the public square. And that is a lesson that if it's being taught at our college campuses, it will be pervasive in our society in you know a decade. And we just really can't afford to have religious beliefs viewed as um, out of bounds for, for the public square. Mm-hmm. And so Lauren, uh, for our listeners, people who follow the work of the USCCB, can you close us out by uh, telling our listeners what they can do um, to respond to this? Absolutely. So we have a action alert that is currently live on, excuse me, the USCCB website at usccb.org forward slash freedom. So you can go to that site, click on the action alert, send a message to your member of Congress in support of the Equal Campus Access Act. And when you do that, it's always helpful for people to include personal stories. So for any Catholic listeners we have, if you know anyone that has been supported or touched by the incredible work of of Catholic campus ministries like Focus and St. Paul's Outreach, include, include more information about how those organizations have done good work and why they should be able to stay on public university campuses. So we hope people will take action and and send those messages to Congress. Well, Kim and Lauren, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to to join me here. I know that y'all are both very busy, so thank you so much. Thank you, Aaron. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for joining us for this episode of the First Freedom Podcast. (music)